Well, good morning. Praise the Lord for church camp. I don't know about you all, but that is exactly like the Baptist church camp I went to as a kid, minus the blob and the lake and the air conditioning. Other than that, it was nothing like the church camp I went to as a kid, but what an awesome time. Uh, what an awesome thing to see the Spirit of God actually moving through. You know, that's something that's hard to get translated on a video, but, um, you know, what really took place there behind the scenes and all the fun is, is the Holy Spirit actually came and hung out with those kids. And so as a result of that, you know, we've got, uh, you know, six kids in particular that wanted to come forward and actually be baptized here in just a few weeks out of our high school youth group. And so praise the Lord for that. We've got 14 total they're going to be getting baptized right now. If you want to get in on that, by all means, uh, reach out to Mindy and, and let her know. But uh, that's something pretty tremendous. So please do mark that on your calendars on August 15th. Be sure to come out to the water park, and not just to eat a snow cone, but also to get to see people you know, outwardly showing what's going on inside. And so uh, very thankful to see the Spirit moving. And, and to get to see youth actually leading worship. You know, what an awesome thing to see high schoolers up here leading us in, in worship and in praise. So for any of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Brock Ashley. I am the artist formerly known as your assistant pastor. And, and until just a few weeks ago when my family and I moved back to Illinois, we are in the process of planning a church there. And so we uh, have got a church called Woodlawn Chapel. There's a banner up on the screen that we had made uh, showing the first service date of September the 13th. So that's quickly coming around. It kind of makes me a little nervous when I see that up there. That's coming rather quickly. And so uh, just a few weeks ago, we crossed over the uh, Mississippi or the Jordan. I'm not sure which one it was. And I won't tell you which side of the Jordan you're on either. Uh, I don't know where the promised land. It may be there, it may be here. Leave that for you guys to be the judge. But uh, very excited about uh, that. So please continue to be in prayer for us and our family as uh, Woodlawn Chapel gets ready to launch here in just a few weeks. So uh, also as a part of our calling, what we're really there for, uh, I am continuing to lead a, a Bible study on Mondays at Rule King. So if you wonder why uh, we're in the book of Lamentations, well, the reason is because it's really hard to prepare two messages in a week, uh, but also because this is where we're at in, in uh, our study. So we're actually studying the Bible from 30,000 feet every Monday over lunch hour, and I'm very thankful to have people week in and week out showing up to hear that. So with that said, we are in the book of uh, Lamentations. So probably not a, a stopping spot you guys normally like to get to, but it does really tie into what's taking place here on Sunday mornings too, because as Mike has taught through Isaiah for, I think, around nine months now, uh, what we're seeing is a lot of the prophecies of Isaiah that was then continued on during Jeremiah's ministry really kind of come to a head in the culmination, at least the near fulfillment of which we really see in the book of Lamentations. And so this is, this is Jeremiah documenting what he's seeing as the judgment is finally coming upon uh, Jerusalem as a city and the nation of Judah as a whole. And so in this spot, Jeremiah is going to today as we do this overview. Again, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse study. We're going to do a, an overview of the entire book of Lamentations and cherry-pick out verses but as he's there doing that for Jeremiah, he's got questions. Now, if any of you uh, have children like I do, you know they have lots of questions, right? And they are not afraid or bashful to ask you questions at any given time. And so recently, uh, over breakfast just a couple weeks ago, 
I have twin eight-year-old boys, and they, want, they had questions for dad. And so their question over breakfast was a, a very easy one to answer. Dad, where do virgins come from? Like, oh, that's some, that's some light discussion for a Saturday morning. And so I answered them like I think every father in America probably would. And I said, ask your mother. That's a great question. Ask mom. To which they responded, we already did. She told us to ask you. Like, oh, stink. So I said, all right, here it is, boys. Here's where virgins come from, right where you'd think, Virginia. <laughs> Ex- except the more liberal ones, they come from West Virginia. Uh, that's what I told them. Now, then their follow-up question was, okay, thanks. Where do eunuchs come from? Like, Ooh, go ask your mom. <laughs> so she got that question. That'll teach her to mess with me. So needless to say, Jeremiah is in a spot. And I think all of us can agree. We've been in a place where you're in mourning and you're in a place of, of seeming despair and, and you begin the, the why God questions. Why does this have to transpire? Why do they have to be this way or that way. And so this is the place that we see Jeremiah in, if you want to make your way to the book of Lamentations. He wrote the book in 586 BC, as we see Nebuchadnezzar now finally coming upon the city of Jerusalem one last time. This would be the third time he would come across the city of Jerusalem, only this time he wouldn't leave uh, anything unturned. But in fact, he would wipe out, destroy uh, everything. But for Jeremiah, his ministry, his prophecy actually started off on a pretty good note. He started under a king, a guy named Josiah, who was, out of all the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, out of the 20 they had, he was one of the eight good ones. In fact, you can make an argument that he might have been the best out of all of the good kings. And he brought about a tremendous revival for the nation of Judah. The issue is the revival was only surface level. It became very popular and in and chic to go to church, right? This, this became kind of the cool Saturday, as it were, thing to do. You go to church, right? And so this is the spot where Judah is in, but the issue is it, it wasn't really taking effect in the heart. And the problem they had, the underlying current for the nation of Judah, is, is the similar thing to what's happening in Isaiah's day. It's one of idolatry. And so Judah was turned to idolatry and all these different idols from the nations around them or what they were worshiping, they were gods like Molech and Mammon and Baal and Ashtoreth and Chemosh. But as we read through this, I don't know about you, but when I look at the Old Testament and I see these names of all these false gods, I think, I don't know that that really relates to me. I don't have a, an idol built to Chemosh at home in my garage. And so how does this really tie in and connect to us today in 2020 until we we realize that behind each one of these false gods there is in fact a very demonic force and spirit. And what I mean by that is is Ashtoreth, for example. She's the goddess of fertility. Eventually on down the line, she would be the goddess Aphrodite. Might be more familiar for you Greek mythology fans. But she was the goddess of fertility and, 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 and directly, she was the goddess of pleasure. Now, do we have any kind of a pleasure problem? I, I think we could maybe relate to that just a little bit. Or perhaps the god Mammon, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't possibly go worship Mammon. It's this weird, like, uh, god with an eagle head, and, and people would have these little statues to Mammon. But then when we realize the underlying spirit for Mammon was actually a god of material wealth or possession, well, that hits a little close to home here for America, doesn't it? Now then lastly, the the God we for sure wouldn't worship is this uh, evil God, what the Bible calls the detestable God Molech of the Canaanites. 
Now, this God, I'll spare you some of the, the gory details, but he was a metallic figure. And, and what they would do is they would actually pass their children through the fire to worship the God Molech, essentially child sacrifice. So for us, we, we find this despicable. We wouldn't possibly do such a thing, except when you understand that the underlying root issue for Molech was he was the God of success. And then we think how many children have been worshipped or have been sacrificed at the altar of success. This one hits pretty close to home. In fact, I could even make the argument oftentimes for me that I'm doing this for them, when in fact they're the ones that are on the idol being sacrificed. So when we begin to put it this way, it, it, it paints a more clear picture of what's really going on for the nation of Judah and, and, and gives us a clear idea why this still applies to us even to this day thousands of years later. Now, for God, he's in this spot where, where finally all this prophecy and all these things that have been talked about for the nation that they would have to endure and that would finally come about and come upon their heads would, would finally come to pass at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is where Jeremiah is watching outside the city gates. Uh, possibly Bible commentators have said he was perhaps even positioned at an area called Golgotha of all places, for him to sit and document this. But as we comb through these five chapters in the book of Lamentations, we're going to see really five points of view. The first uh, is the point of view of the city, as we see it personified in chapter 1. Secondly, the point of view from God. We're going to get a God's eye view of what he thinks in chapter 2. Thirdly, from the prophet Jeremiah himself in chapter 3. Fourth, from the possessions or the actual materials of the city are going to give us some insight in chapter 4. And then last, the captives who are being taken off to Babylon in their experience. What does this look like for them in chapter 5? So without uh, further ado, let's begin in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. And so beginning in verse 1, we see how lovely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she? Who was great among the nations? The princess among the provinces has become a slave. And so what Jeremiah is looking at is a city that is now empty. And if you ever get the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, some of you in here have actually gotten the chance to go there and witness it. It is a busy, bustling city. There is no social distancing going on. It is jam-packed with people, the streets are tight, it's very lively and active, but what he's witnessing here as he writes this down is it looks post-apocalyptic. There's nobody around, the streets are barren. This once proud place that was like a princess has now become a slave. And then continuing in verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night, her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And so in verse 2, what we see is Judah, this, this southern kingdom, has married herself, is the way the scripture paints it for us, to all these other lovers. All the lands all around, she has essentially gotten into bed with. They've, they've formed these relationships. And yet, as Babylon has come down upon them and destruction is imminent, uh, they're all gone. Nobody is there to stand up with her for her, she is left there by herself all alone. Now then, verse 4, The roads to Zion mourn, because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. 
And so we see this place of Jerusalem, which was known as the central spot for them to have feasts. In fact, Leviticus 23, God even calls them my feasts. These are his feasts that they were supposed to have. Jerusalem knew how to throw a party. They had it going on on Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. And yet here they are, this place that was such kind of the party center. There is no party going on. The party has stopped. The streets are barren. And and then continuing on in verse 10, the adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. And so now we see the adversary coming up to the temple, the actual sanctuary itself. And, and for uh, the people of Israel, they would consider this temple mount area exceedingly sacred. In fact, there were areas where, depending on your nationality, you were allowed to go and not allowed to go. So the outer courts, the main area, this was called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come in. didn't matter, male, female, black, white, they don't care. You can come to the court of the Gentiles. But as you got progressively closer to the temple itself, they would get pared down to just the Jews only, and then just the men, and then finally just the Levites. Now, they're in a spot where uh, there are Gentiles everywhere. And in fact, the nations all around have ransacked everything. They've destroyed it and taken it all the way to the ground that the, that the building that had been so much a part of their worship was now destroyed. And what we see is God's trying to make it very clear as he's uh, allowing these things to take place that it was never supposed to be about a building. It was always about a relationship. That they were so excited about religion and all their rules that they'd forgotten God. And so it's all taken to the ground. Now then, verse 16 and 17, For I, for these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. And Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. And so we see the cry of the city as it, as it weeps over what's taking place. And what we also see is Jeremiah writes this as he's kind of going along with the weeping. He's known as the weeping prophet. He's, he's crying out there that there's no comfort for Jerusalem in this time. And what we, what we see is a parallel to the New Testament is Jesus is actually likened to Jeremiah. When he's questioning his disciples and he's asking them in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? One of the answers they give is they say you are Jeremiah the prophet. Why do they say that? Well, I'll turn with you really quickly to Matthew 23. This is Jesus' assessment some 600 years later of the city of Jerusalem as he's getting ready to walk into his own crucifixion. There, Matthew 23, 37, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see Jesus having the same perspective as he looks out over Jerusalem hundreds of years later as he's weeping over the city. I wanted so badly to, to bring you in. Uh, this is your big day. You're supposed to be excited and celebrate. Instead, he knows just a few days later they're going to crucify him. And so he's weeping uh, over the city and crying over it. Now then, chapter 2, as we 
continue this, we get the, the God's eye perspective as we see God's judgment realized. Chapter 2, verse 1. How, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. And so what we see is, is because the people have refused to repent, they have absolutely denied God completely. He has no choice. This was not the thing he wanted. This was not his choice for plan A. Then in verse 5, we read that the Lord was like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. And so what we've seen throughout the book of Jeremiah, and we've even seen it throughout studies of Isaiah, is all this mention to other nations and people that are going to come up against Israel. If it was the Assyrians, and, and then in Jeremiah, it's the Babylonians. But what we notice in the book of Lamentations is there is absolutely not one single mention of Babylon. None. No mention of Nebuchadnezzar. There's only mention of God and what he is, in fact, allowing to take place. Because Jeremiah understands this is, this is God that's the one that's actually bringing this judgment upon the people, allowing it to take place. And the question is why? The answer is these are his children. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, he says, As you uh, endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? And so they are being disciplined out of love, right? We know as parents we give rules and regulations and try to keep our kids safe, because not because we're angry, but because we love them, we care for them. And this is the spot God is in. He's allowing this to take place as an act of love. In verse 7, we see the Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. And they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. And so typically the noise on the set feast, though, is one of joy. This time it's one of, of crying and anguish. But what has happened is the temple has actually been destroyed, and along with the temple, the altar. Now this is significant because the altar is the place where sacrifices are given, right? In order to atone for sin, blood must be let. The blood of an animal, in this case, must be spilled there on the altar for the people's sins to be forgiven. But what happens if there is no altar? <laughs> now there is no remission of sin for the nation of Israel. They've got a major problem on their hands. Which is why as they're carried off into captivity, they begin to develop these alternative laws. They begin to add to the word of God and they would call it the Talmud. So they'd have all these Talmudic rules and regulations as to ways that they could atone for sin outside of the law of God. And I bring that up to say this is why in the New Testament is Jesus is continually accused of breaking the law. They were actually accusing him of breaking the Talmudic law, the law of Man, the law of rule and regulation, not the law of Moses. So he would uh, continuously be pointing them back to the law of Moses and, and bringing about these lessons that, that were actually God-breathed and God-inspired. All right, then in verse 13, we see, How shall I console you? Remember, this is God speaking. To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For ruin is spread like a sea, and who can heal you? 
All in verse 15, all who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the, whole, the joy of the whole earth? And so what we see is what has been prophesied by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by Habakkuk, over and over again, we're seeing the culmination of these prophecies actually playing out before their very eyes. And what was supposed to be this beautiful city that, that all the, the nations around would look at and go, well, this, is, this is the apple of God's eye, was now laying in ruins. And, and in fact, it would be such a destruction that what Jeremiah would write in chapter 19 of his prophecies is that people would hear about this and their ears would tingle, that the hair on the back of their necks would actually stand up, that, that God would allow this to happen to, to this people. But what we find is that his word must stand, that there is not going to be any backing down from the word of God, that it will come to pass. Now then, continuing on, into chapter 3 as we see Jeremiah now agonized. Don't worry, there's a light here. Just hang with me. He, he, he begins, though, by writing, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath in chapter 3, verse 1. What he's starting off this section from his point of view is, here I've prophesied over this nation, and now I'm actually seeing it happen in front of my very eyes. I've got a front row seat. In verse 7, he says, He, being God, has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. And so God specifically told Jeremiah not to pray for the nation of Judah anymore. That they had spent so much time hardening their heart towards God that eventually God would not hear their cries anymore. He basically said to Jeremiah, You are wasting your breath. And this is important for us to get our, our minds wrapped around because if you remember, as Moses is approaching Pharaoh over and over again, explaining to him they're going to have these plagues come against their land if they didn't let the Israelites go, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart until eventually what we find at the end is God hardened his heart. That, that there became such a hardness in the heart of Pharaoh that God actually cast it into place like concrete. He said it. It was cemented in. And this is the spot that the nation is in. They had set themselves into place. It, it was too late for them. And then Jeremiah writes he, in verse 9, He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Jeremiah is in a spot where he feels alone and he is completely and utterly without any kind of friends around him. He prophesied for 40 years to this group of people and had zero, not one convert. No one listened to him for 40 years. That's some kind of ministry right there. Now then in verse 19, we see, Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. So Jeremiah is at his ultimate low point, right? He's seeing all this take place, but then in verse 20, look there with me. He says, my soul remembers and sinks within me. This is a little glimmer of hope from Jeremiah because he begins to recall in his soul the character of God. What is God's character? And I think this is important as we are struggling with things and we're wondering as, as it seems like it's destruction in our life and we begin to ask these questions, it's good for us to recall what is the character of God. When I don't know, I go back to what I do know. And what does God say specifically about himself? I don't have this on the notes, but if you turn with me back to Exodus chapter 34, 
in verse 6. This is God speaking of himself about himself. And and the spot that we're in here is Moses has asked God to actually see his glory. He wants to see it as they've had this relationship on Mount Sinai. Now Moses can't look upon God's face or he'll die. So instead God positions him behind a rock and passes past him. And so Moses is able to see the, the afterglow or the backside of God as he goes past. But what's important here, and this is something Jeremiah would have known from his studies, is in Exodus chapter 34 Verse 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So what God had to say about himself to Moses is still true as Jeremiah is thinking back on these things. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh. This is a covenant name of God. I am. I am. I am Elohim. I am God. And then he goes on to say, I am merciful. I am gracious. I am true. I am long-suffering. And so he's able to remember these things about the nature of God. So if you ever wonder, why in the world do we study through a book like Lamentations? It's so that we can recall in our darkest moments, what is the nature of God? And, and, then, and then things begin to change for Jeremiah in verse 21 of chapter 3. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The next verse goes on to say, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. So if you youth ever wonder, why should I trust in God now? Why can't I wait? It is good to bear his yoke in your youth. You don't want to wait until you've got a whole lifetime of stuff stacked up against you. But this is what Jeremiah has recalled about God, and specifically what he's calling to is the mercy of God. The word mercy here in Hebrew is the word hasad, which could also be translated loving kindness. That means covenant love. Why is that important for us? Because covenant love is a covenant God has made with us based on, not us, based on him. Just like he spoke about himself and testified about himself, he also has granted us covenant love or mercy because of his character and who he is. And thank the Lord for that because if it's dependent upon me and my character and me sticking with things, I flip-flop more than Al Gore trying to figure out global warming. Like I, I'm all over the place. I'm like I'm here, I'm there. I, I'm, I'm, I can't be counted on. There's no way. But thankfully, this is covenant love. This is, this is what God said he will, he will do because he is who he says he is. In verse 31, he continues, For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. So here's Jeremiah. Imagine this scene. He's sitting perhaps in Golgotha, this place that Christ would be crucified uh, 600 years later. He's sitting there watching the city literally burn to the ground, and yet these are his statements. He will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. If that's not a faith statement, I don't know what is. Because nothing he would see in his eyes that his eyes could see would say, God is going to be good in this spot. 
Like everything says this is a disaster. And yet what he knows, because he is understanding the character of who God is, is that he's going to be good. He is going to be merciful. He's going to be compassionate upon me in this spot. Now then, continuing on in chapter 4, as we see justice now publicized, as, as even the materials of the city cry out, chapter 4, verse 1, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold, the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. And so what we see is even the gold is, it has judgment brought about upon it. And what we know historically, as we can read through different writers, is that Nebuchadnezzar would actually burn the temple to the ground and melt the gold that was inlaid on the walls so he could take it and carry it away. That even the gold was judged. Now then, chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and devoured its foundations. By the way, if you go to Israel in 2021, they have archaeological digs where you can even see the burn marks still on the foundations from this time. He has devoured its foundations, and the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And so for the Jew, this belief was held that, that Israel was at the center of the entire world. And if Israel was at the center of the world, then Jerusalem was at the center of Israel. If Jerusalem was at the center of Israel, then the temple was at the center of Jerusalem. And so now they're in a spot where everything all the way down to the very center of what they believed was right and good has been taken all the way to the ground. It's been trampled underfoot. And so where are they to turn? What we see is, is continuing uh, in verse 13, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. And so these deceptive priests and prophets, they even killed the very messengers of God. As prophets were brought about, one after another was actually uh, you know, completely uh, taken. And, and, and lots of times, like Isaiah, who we're studying on Sunday mornings, for example, sawn in half by evil King Manasseh. Not a great way to go, by the way. Yet this is the, this is the spot that the nation was in and why God had to judge them. Then in verse 14, they wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood and so that no one would touch their garments. Their leadership, the politicians, they become so corrupt they'd even defile their own clothing with the blood of the people of the city. Now then in verses 21 and 22, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, and he will uncover your sins. And so what we see in this set of verses, believe it or not, is actually a hope when we read that the daughter of Zion will no longer be sent into captivity, that there was a time frame that God was going to discipline his children. In fact, Jeremiah would prophesy 70 years would be the time frame. And, and wouldn't you know it, King Cyrus would let them come back 70 years after their captivity. And so we see that, that there's a, a set amount of time, and yet for the nations around them, in particular for their brother Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers, Israel and Edom were the two nations. Their own brother Edom would not come to their rescue, would not even stand up for them. In fact, they cheered as the Babylonians went into the city and wiped them out. 
Well, here's what God's saying about Edom. Uh, I will punish your iniquity. I will uncover your sin. And what we find is today, has anybody seen an Edomite anywhere? Anyone? No, that's right, because there's no more. Right? So God's word is going to pass because of their own sin against their brother. Uh, it, it's a good reminder for us when it comes to uh, the Edomite in our life. Right? Let's, let's come alongside each other. Now then, uh, chapter 5, as we get here to the end and we see the citizens now traumatized as we get the point of view of those captives that are carried away to Babylon, they say in verse 1 and 2, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. And so we see a call by the people, by the nation, to the goodness of God and, and a cry for restoration. In verse 12, we see that princes were hung up by their hands and the elders were not respected. This is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ when we see the princes hung by their hands. The, the prince of peace would actually be the one that would be hung by his hands in order to take care of the sins of all the people. They can't have an atoning sacrifice, but they can with the perfect Lamb of God. And so we see that foreshadowed here. In verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we had sinned. And so what we see is a repentant heart, actually, by the people when it's too late. It's always when it's too late. That's a good reminder to us, not to wait till it's too late. They're being carted off to Babylon, and there's no more time. They're, they're out of time. Verses 19 through 21, You, O Lord, remain forever. For your throne, your throne from generation to generation, why do you forget us forever and forsake us for such a long time? Turn back to us, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. And so here we are getting to actually see the, the prophecy of this restoration coming to fulfillment. It's kind of a, an awesome time that we're in that, that post May 14th, 1948, we get to see what was seemingly impossible. How could a nation be restored, especially one that had been wiped out for thousands of years? We could actually see resurrection take place right there in the Middle East. And so we see this restoration for the people, and yet it's not a prophecy that's complete because it's still a very secular country. They haven't turned themselves back to the Lord, but they will. Just wait. Hopefully uh, you'll be with me. I'm going to be in heaven checking this thing out. This is post-rapture stuff. But, but this is... This is the spot that the nation's in. They, they know that if, they, if the Lord uh, restores them, it'll be as it was supposed to be from the days of, of old. And the cry really here from Lamentations and from God is for them to return to living waters. If you flip back with me just a little bit, one last place will turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Here are the two charges that God really had against them. And, and if there's application to this chapter, this, this book, this is what I'd like us to take from it. He says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, God, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so for them, the sin was one of self-reliance. They had decided, and, and it, this would happen in this agrarian society where they would only get rain certain times of the year. They would go out in the desert places and they would carve out these cisterns in the rock. But the only way to know if a cistern was actually good or not, or if it had a fracture somewhere, was after the rains, you'd go out and see if it held water. 
And what God's saying to them is you've, you've carved out cisterns with your own hands. You've, you've dug this out in order to collect water, and yet they're broken. They're empty. There is no water there. And what we see if we fast forward to the New Testament in John chapter 4 is he's sitting there uh, next to the woman at the well, this Gentile woman of, of mixed race. She's also a woman who's been married five times. She's got some baggage. But as Jesus is sitting there next to her at the well, he would have said, woman, he says, give me a drink. And she comments back to him, you don't even have anything to draw water from. And he says in a reply, if you would have known who you were talking to, you would have asked me for living water. Now this is not ironic that he's sitting next to this Gentile by a well that would have been dug by human hands, now offering to her living water. Not from a, a dug hole in the ground, but instead from the Prince of Peace. And so for us, the takeaway here for me is, is to remember that we have access as believers in Jesus Christ to living waters. And yet our tendency so often is to go dig cisterns, right? Maybe it's the, the, maybe it's the cistern of, of my 401k or my bank account or my family's health or whatever the hole is that you want to dig. And we want to collect the living water, but then we want it to just stay there. Boy, God, if you could just stay put in this spot. And yet even if we're able to carve something out that holds water, what happens if it sits there for a while? It gets stagnant. It becomes death. But the cry here of God is, I, I want to provide you living waters. Like one of my favorite places in Missouri, Alley Springs, right? Just literally bubbling forth with living water over and over again. So much you can't even contain it, even if you want to. This is the promise that God wants for us. But the real issue is, as we dig these cisterns for ourselves, it's one of trust. Do I trust him enough to know he will keep providing? Do I trust them enough to know that this water won't be cut off anytime soon? So this is the spot that we're in. It's, it's one of self-reliance or it's one of hope. And that's really what we're struggling with right now as we look at people desperately trying to dig holes in the ground for every little thing they can in our country, whether it's race or religion or health or wealth, whatever it is, they are desperately trying to carve something out for themselves just to hang on to any little piece. And what we know is this thing's all going to come to an end. We're in a spot where we can see it, right? We know this thing is, is going to a certain spot. This is going to come down to the wire and it's going to end. And yet they don't have access to living water. So the blessing we have is we are the one group of people that have hope where nobody else has hope. We don't have to rely upon health and wealth and our government because we serve the king of kings, right? He's not the president of presidents. He's the king of stinking kings, guys. This is the one we serve. Praise the Lord. We know he's going to take care of all this in the end someday very soon. So let the living waters splash out on people all around you. Yes, it looks dark in these times, but we are the ones that have the light. So praise the Lord for that. Father, thank you so much for uh, seemingly a real downer of a book, um, but Lord, for the promise of living water, for the promise of we don't have to go out and work hard to dig these holes in the ground anymore, Lord, that you have provided more than enough 
for us to have, to water all the ground all around us. In fact, your promise is to take these desert places and make them bloom. Your promise is uh, to make graves into gardens, Lord, that you are going to bring this about, and we can't wait to see it. And Lord, in the process, please help us to splash out onto people all around us as we spread hope and joy and love to this country that needs it so badly. Well, we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.